You heard this last night being recited, Romans chapter 8. Watch how what Chad is saying actually is true in this song and in the way we've been speaking and the passages that we've been listening to this week. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from my Savior's hand. Until Jesus returns or He calls me home to heaven until I die, here in that power of Christ I'll stand. Now listen to this in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things we, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that great gospel truth in song and in Scripture? That's exactly what we're talking about. So I agree. Thank you so much, Chad. The songs that we're singing are deep, deep theology. And guess what? You can handle it. You can handle it. Some of you are like, how come we're not singing like jump around goofy songs? You can handle this and you should be able to. And this is awesome for us. So thank you. Thanks for singing so well. Also, I love that song. I love all of those, all those songs that we sang here this evening. I'm wearing a Lakeside Youth shirt uh, tonight. My, my guys from Lakeside, I thought I was going to be special today. Like the only guy that got a Lakeside youth shirt, but as I'm walking around today, like everybody's got a lakeside youth shirt. So, uh, but I do feel special because I'm part of a family of churches uh, that's called the Engage Network. There's seven churches. Our church, Sailorville Church, is one of them. We've got one more on the way. We planted a whole bunch of churches. Lakeside is one of our churches. They're here this week, of course. Really glad to be part of that. How many of you are from High Point Church in Altoona? I know we got a couple of you guys as well. There you go. Okay, so a couple of those guys. Living Waters on the south side of Des Moines. Where are you guys? Living Waters? Got a couple? Yeah, there you go. Um, we've also got a couple from Ballard Creek, our newest church. We got one or two. Hey, there you go. So you guys are sort of double dipping. That's all right. And then from our church, Sailorville Church, we got a couple kids here from other places as well. So awesome, awesome, awesome. We are a network of gospel-centered church, churches planting gospel-centered churches. At least that's what we pray that we're doing. And uh, it's just exciting to be a part of what God is doing in his kingdom, just like he's doing at your church we pray as well. Hey, we're talking about the abundant life, John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly, more abundantly, overflowing, full and overflowing. We're talking about that this week. Life, it's more than a game. We have this opportunity to have abundant life. And I know for some of you, that makes you think, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I can't wait to get more. I can't wait to have more things. I can't wait to have more money. I can't wait to be more popular or to have really, really good-looking spouses one day and then to have really, really good-looking kids and to have more goodness in my life. I can't wait for that. But that's not what that abundant life is talking about. Tonight, we're going to talk about the game Hungry, Hungry Hippos. You ever played that one? Oh, my goodness. Love that game. What's the goal in this game? Actually, there's a Hungry Hippos team here, isn't there? Where, where are you guys? There you go. Here's the thing about hungry, 
Hippos are so hungry, they had to name it Hungry Hungry Hippos. I mean, these hippos just want more, right? It's all about getting all of the marbles, more and more and more marbles, and you're just going crazy. I mean, you are just jamming on that lever until all of those marbles are gone, right? And here's the thing. In this game, the hippos are always hungry, They're always hungry, and you always want more. It's never, ever, ever enough. Our question tonight, is Jesus enough? We sang about it earlier, Jesus, you are all to us. And you guys, some of you were singing at the top of your voices. And I want to make sure that we're not lying as we're singing here, like singing things that aren't true in our hearts. Is Jesus all to you? Is he all that you really need? Is Jesus enough for you? If the abundant life is all of Jesus, is that enough for you? Or are you going to look to be satisfied by other things other than Jesus? Your junior hires, we're going deep tonight, and I know you can handle this. So open up your Bibles. We're going to be in the New Testament again. We've already talked about Jesus in two stories here this week with the four friends and the paralyzed guy and then with the woman at the well. And so we're in Mark chapter 6 today. Matthew's the first book in the, in the New Testament and then Mark is the next one. We call it the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. You actually find this exact same story though that we're going to talk about tonight in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this little stories and their accounts of Jesus' life. Okay, so in fact, the miracle that we're about to read about is the only miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus himself that actually shows up in all four Gospels. And that should tell us something is really important about this story. It's one of my all-time favorite stories in all of the Bible. I think we'll discover why it's in all four of these Gospels here in just a few minutes. Okay, so let's pick it up in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, and uh, grab your forks. We are digging in here, and we're going to eat from God's word, right? Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles, that's another word for the disciples, they returned to Jesus, and they told Jesus all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate or a, a place where there's not other people, a desolate place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, many people were, and they had no leisure even to eat. They didn't even have time, the disciples didn't even have time to eat because there were so many people. And so the disciples went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Here's a little bit of context, some of the history of what's happening here. The disciples, Jesus' friends, have just come back from a missions trip. Anybody go on a missions trip over the summer with your church or your youth group, maybe this summer, last summer, or you're looking forward to one one day? Yeah, it's something that we really enjoy doing and something very important. These disciples have just come back from a missions trip. They've gone out in pairs, so two by two, and they're sharing the good news of the gospel with everybody, and they've seen God do some amazing things. But here's the deal. When we find them here, they're really tired. They're worn out. And missions trips will do that to you, just like a week of camp will do that to you. And honestly, these disciples just want a little bit of time without people. They just want to hang out with Jesus alone for a little while. And so Jesus turns to them and says, hey guys, come with me. We're going to rest for a little bit. 
And so they get into the boat, one of a fisherman's boat, maybe even one of the disciples had that boat. So they get into this boat, they head out from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee towards the east side. It's about eight miles in the boat from where they launch to where they eventually come onto shore near the little fishing village of Bethsaida. But their time of rest, remember, they're trying to get away from people. They're trying to rest and get some refreshment and rejuvenation. Their time of rest was cut short according to the next couple of verses. Look at verse 33. Now many, that's many people, saw them going and they recognized them. So there's people on the shore and they see the disciples and Jesus get into the boat and they recognize them. They say, oh, there's Jesus and the disciples. I know who they are. And watch what these people do. So they run there on foot from all of the towns in that area, and they get there ahead of them. And so when Jesus went ashore, verse 34, he saw a great crowd. And so here come all the people again, and they just keep coming. They just keep coming. They're just closing in on these disciples and on Jesus. And Mark says the people actually ran to meet Jesus. That word means that they actually were chasing after something with other people. And so I want you to picture like a huge crowd, a mob of people that are frenzied and frantic. And they are like rushing after Jesus, kind of like you guys rush out to play Gaga Ball after a meal, right? There's just like a a mob of, of these crowds, and they're frantic, and they're frenzied, and they're looking for Jesus. And so the picture here is that Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, and there's people that are on the shore, and they see them, and they're running along the shore as Jesus and his disciples are trying to, like, get away from them. <laughs> this mob is following Jesus everywhere he goes. And you say, maybe it's a good thing that people are following Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we want? More people to follow Jesus, more people to interact with him, more people to get to know him? Well, maybe, but that kind of depends on their motivation, doesn't it? And so this is where we find the first of what I'm going to call four types of faith in this story. Four types of faith. So if you're writing things down, here's the first faith. Here's the first faith, the faith of the crowd. I'm going to call this a convenient faith this evening, the faith of the crowd, what I call a convenient faith. Listen to what John says about why these people were so hard after Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 2, he says, because these people saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. So you see why they were so hard after Jesus? You see why they were chasing him? Why this mob couldn't let Jesus alone? Not because they wanted him himself, but because they wanted what he could do for them. These people wanted Jesus because of what he could do for them. They ran to see his works, but they refused to obey his words. This crowd was big on their physical wants, but blind to their spiritual needs. Now catch this, their following Jesus was based on what he could do for them. It was a convenient following. A convenient faith. They wanted Jesus to feed them, to heal them, to say nice things to them. And a few chapters from now, most of these same people deserted Jesus because it just wasn't convenient to be associated with him anymore. This is a convenient faith, the faith of the crowd. Let's just make some application here together this evening. You might be here this week because you want Jesus to solve some kind of a temporary problem in your life. Maybe you feel like you don't have any friends. 
And so you're frantically chasing after Jesus, hoping that he's going to fix that problem for a little while. Or maybe you've got anxiety about something and you want Jesus to take away that feeling. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you take that anxiety away from me. Or maybe you're sick or, or your parents are fighting or you don't have a bunch of cool stuff like your neighbors do and you don't even know why your parents made you come this week but you're trying Jesus for right now because you want him to make your life more comfortable. That's a convenient faith. That's the faith of the crowd. And so here's something that each of you need to think about tonight. It's a question for you. I want you to think about this and then talk with some people later. Are you chasing Jesus because of something he can do for you? Because if that's true, then chances are when he does that thing, you'll probably ditch him. Once the anxiety is gone, you won't need Jesus anymore if that's why you're following him. Or once your family is getting along again, you'll be done with Jesus. When he's fixed your problem, you will just simply move on to something else to satisfy you. Are you looking for the gift? Or do you want the giver of the gift? The story goes on here and it tells us that the crowds meet Jesus on the beach. And so here's Jesus. He's been followed by this mob of frantic and frenzied crowds and he pulls onto shore and here the crowd meets him on the shore. He pulls the boat onto the shore, onto the sand like some of you did with your kayaks or canoes this, this, uh, today down at the river or down at the lakefront. And here's all this mob of people ready to meet Jesus. They're clamoring and clawing at him before he even gets off the boat. Anybody go to the state fair in Des Moines? The first Friday night of the state fair is pandemonium. It's packed full of people. There are people like shoulder to shoulder. That's the picture that I have here. There are so many people here on the shore that Jesus can hardly even pull the boat up with his disciples into the sand on the beach. It's just crazy. There's people all over the place. And watch how Jesus responds. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Yeah, that's putting it mildly, right? But how does he respond? He had compassion. Compassion on them. If you underline or circle in your Bible or whatever, if you're allowed to do that, go ahead and circle that word compassion. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Wow. Here's how Jesus responds when, when his time of rest is interrupted by the crushing crowds of people who, listen, for the most part, were not following him because they loved him, but because they liked what he could do for them. Here's how he responded. He had compassion on them. Compassion. Some of you know this part of the Bible was originally written in the Greek language, and so here's a really specific Greek word that's used for this idea of compassion in the New Testament, and it, this is it right here up on the board. It's splanknizomai. Oh my goodness. Isn't that a great word? Hey, say it with me. One, two, three. Splanknizomai. We'll do it again. One, two, three. Splanknizomai. Okay, now I need you to go, I need you to really bring it out from like the, the belly now, all right? The, from the gut, okay? It's almost like you're getting ready to hock a loogie or something here, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Splanknizomai. Oh, that's a good word. You guys know Greek now. You can basically translate the whole New Testament. It's a great word. I love it. And it's actually a word that is referring to... Now, you're junior hires, so just keep it, keep it to a low roar on this one. 
This word is referring to being moved in the bowels. Okay, right? Moved in the bowels. That's like what some of you guys have had after the first couple of days of camp food. All right? I get that. It, it's, it's referring to what happens in your gut. This splonchnizomai is a deep-seated gut-level empathy that led to action on the part of the person that had it, on the part of the compassionate person. Here's a great definition of compassion that I heard from my dad. Compassion is simply love in action. Splunk nidzimai. It's that deep level empathy that you have for someone else in need and it drives, drives you to action. We see that in Jesus' life over and over in the New Testament. In fact, we've already seen it this week. Most of the times... This word splonknizomai is used in the New Testament. It's actually referring to Jesus and the way that he acted towards people. And so, a junior higher, maybe like me, you struggle to move toward the mess of the lives of people at times. Maybe you struggle to interact with somebody that's a little bit on the outside. Or maybe you struggle to put the needs of others before your own. When Meredith and I were in youth ministry for almost 20 years, we spent several summers down in the inner city of Philadelphia in a neighborhood that was full of homelessness and drugs and gangs and street shootings. We spent time often on the busiest drug, um, uh, drug uh, uh, corner in, in the entire United States. Many, many, many days. Kensington and Allegheny in the middle of inner city Philly. And we met a man there that became one of our spiritual heroes, Pastor Frank Vega. And he just had a way of ministering to people that I just wanted to follow. He's one of my heroes. Passed away several years ago. And so I asked him one day, how in the world do you love these people in this neighborhood so much? And he said something that I'll never forget. He looked me right in the eye and he said, Jason, only when we see people the way Jesus sees people will we treat people the way Jesus treats them. Only when we have the eyes of Jesus will we have the hands of Jesus. And maybe you struggle with that like I do. And maybe you want to be more compassionate like I do. Maybe you want to love with more than just lip service. Here's the question. How do you see people when you're looking around at the school bus and you're, and you're just getting ready to get on the bus, how do you see people at that bus stop? When you're in the cafeteria looking across the table at your school, how do you see people? When you're out here on the basketball court or when you're playing that crazy octa soccer game, how do you see people? How do you see people at the carpet ball table when you're online or when you're riding your bike in your neighborhood or when you're sitting across from someone at youth group or even in the dining room table with your family around you? How do you see people? Do you see them like Jesus sees them? Listen, in spite of all the unbelief that Jesus had encountered, in spite of his desire to withdraw, to rest a little bit from his great public activity and to be alone with his best friends in the whole world, his heart was moved for these people who wouldn't leave him alone. Now watch this. Christ's compassion toward us does not depend on our faith toward him. We just read that in Romans chapter 8. We just sang that in Christ alone. Christ's compassion for us 
doesn't depend on our faith in him. The eyes of Jesus saw more than a mass of people whose faith was based on convenience. He saw their spiritual needs. They were sheep without a shepherd, right? Wandering around looking for anything that would satisfy them temporarily. Does that describe anybody that you know? Maybe somebody back at home. Maybe somebody at your school or in your youth group or somebody even in your family. Maybe that describes you this evening. Maybe you're chasing after Jesus this week out of convenience. Maybe you're here saying, I'm going to go all in on the Jesus thing while I'm here because that's what everybody else seems to be doing. But once I'm out of here, I'm done with Jesus. That's the faith of a of the crowd. It's a convenient faith. Jesus treated these men and women, boys and girls in this crowd with compassion. Luke chapter 9, the same story says, but the crowds followed him and Jesus welcomed them. And he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Jesus threw open his arms to this crowd and he welcomed them to him. He taught them. He healed them. He gave them truth and love. That's the gist of the gospel, truth and love. And about a year after this story takes place, Jesus would once again throw open his arms, this time on a cross, and he would say, welcome all of you who are weary and tired and burdened down with sin and shame and broken and hungry and hurt. And I will give you rest. Trust in me. Give it to me. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for you, my precious lamb. Like sheep without a shepherd they were. And then here comes the disciples again, right? We give these guys a bad rap sometimes, but I think really the truth is we see ourselves in them. We feel a little bit for them. Here they are trying to go on vacation with Jesus. They're trying to get away from the crowds, from ministry, from serving, from sharing the gospel, from just being around people. And there's Jesus always just, of course, being Jesus. He's just loving on people. He's healing people. There's always people around him. He's teaching them about the kingdom. And it's not exactly a vacation. And so the Bible says there's thousands of people, 5,000 men, and maybe up to ten or 20,000 total with all the women and children. And it's getting late and the disciples are kind of annoyed and they're tired. They're just trying to get away, but they're sort of getting a little bit hangry like we do when it's just before mealtime. And so we read in verse 35, it was growing late and the disciples came to Jesus and they said, this is a desolate place. There's nothing around here. And the hour is now late. It is late in the day and we've already missed lunch and we're about to miss dinner again. Jesus, send the people away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. And so it is late in the day and the disciples say, Jesus, we've been at this all day now. You've been teaching and you've been healing and having all this compassion on all these people. And Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, but nobody here has had anything to eat. And it's almost dinner time. And Jesus, I know you went like 40 days in the wilderness without food, but maybe this is not the time for that lesson, the disciples are saying. People are starting to get hungry. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no Burger Kings. There's no Olive Garden. There was a Garden of Olives, actually, but that's like a whole different story, right? 
And so I picture these disciples looking at Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, I mean, this has been a blast, like sharing you with thousands of people while we're supposed to be taking a break. That's really, really awesome. Thank you, Jesus. But enough is enough. Can we just get away? It's time for these people to leave. And the disciples say, send the people away. Now catch this. Jesus sees the people as sheep without a shepherd and he treats them with compassion. Splunk, nidzimai. <laughs> the disciples see the people as a problem to solve and they try to send them away. And so I want to ask you again, how do you see people? How do you see people? That annoying guy in your cabin, how do you see him? That girl that won't leave you alone, she's following you around from your cabin all through the meals. How do you see people this week? Jesus looks back at the disciples. John's version of the story says that he speaks directly to a disciple named Philip, who's from Bethsaida, right in that same area. And he asks Philip, hey, Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that all these people can eat? And Jesus said this to test Philip because he knew what he was about to do. And Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get even a little bit. 200 denarii. This is one of my favorite parts of the entire story. I love it because the disciples have just gotten through explaining why they can't possibly feed this massive crowd. And wait, did Jesus just hear what we said? There are thousands of people. There's no dinner and door dash like we saw with the contenders this morning won't be around for like 2,000 years. It doesn't even exist yet. Jesus, do you understand what is happening here? How do you want us to feed this crowd? You gotta be kidding me. We don't have any money, and even if we did, there's no food to buy. But Jesus wouldn't let his men off the hook. Why? Because he wants them to get involved in the grand adventure that comes by helping others by faith. And so here's where we see the second type of faith in this story, the faith of Philip. The faith of Philip. And I'm calling this a calculated faith. We saw the faith of the crowd, a convenient faith. This is the faith of Philip, a calculated faith. I love this. Jesus turns to Philip. Do you have anybody here that's in like an advanced math class or you know somebody in advanced math class? This is Philip, right? This is Philip. Because he's been using his pocket calculator all day to try to figure out like how much it would cost to give a snack to these thousands of people. Just like all you guys in advanced math. He's, he know, he's, he's like a bean counter. He's a numbers guy, just like all of you. And he guesses it's going to cost 200 denarii. That's almost a full year's wage just to give everybody a little tiny piece of bread. And honestly, Philip actually was right. Logically, humanly, Mathematically, from a financial calculation standpoint, he nailed it. It doesn't make sense. But isn't this how Jesus works with us too sometimes? Over and over again, he puts us in positions that seem helpless. And then he says, do something. And in our desperation, we cry out to heaven, how, Jesus, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. And he says, I'm glad you asked. It's not that Jesus wants us to fail, but he does want us to know that without him, we can do nothing. Jesus, you are all to us. 
That's how God grows our faith, when he provides the evidence of things we can't yet see or figure out. Listen, guys, the disciples' problem wasn't that they had miscalculated the need. It was that they had misplaced their faith. They thought that they were supposed to come up with the solution instead of trusting Jesus for the solution. Now think about this with me. They had Jesus with them. They'd been walking with Jesus for almost three years now. They had Jesus, the Son of God, standing right next to them, and yet they never even asked him, hey, Jesus, what what do you think we should do? Jesus, is there any way that you could provide for this? Jesus, what do you... They never even asked him. John MacArthur, a pastor commentator, he says this, the possibility that Jesus might create the necessary food never even crossed their minds. They're so focused on the problem and on the need to find a human solution that they failed to even consider the divine power of their Lord. Duh, of course. Why didn't we think of that, the disciples think? We've got Jesus right here. Food for thousands? No problem. We've seen him do all kinds of things. This is Jesus that we're talking about. Maybe we should stop trying to calculate how to handle the problems in our own lives and instead just let Jesus blow our minds. And so Jesus turns to the disciples again in Mark chapter 6, verse 38. He says to them, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves of bread? Go and see. And when they'd found out They said five loaves and two fish. The Gospel of John, the correlation here, tells us that it was Andrew who found a young boy who had five loaves and two fish and actually brought the boy to Jesus. Now you're thinking maybe like some of the food that we've had here this week already. It's not like a nice nice uh, a sub bun or, or like a, a thinly sliced you know, uh, uh, wonder bread or something like that. These loaves, these biscuits are actually more like little crackers made of barley, probably no bigger than, than maybe like this. And the fish were probably dried or smoked fish right from that sea of Galilee, something small like sardines, right? A little bit bigger than the Swedish fish candy. <laughs> so these are like biscuits and little tiny sardines. And so Andrew finds the boy and he brings him to Jesus. And then Andrew makes this statement about the five loaves and and two fish. Andrew says, but how far are they going to go among so many people? And so if Philip's faith was a calculated faith, I think the faith of Andrew was a cautious faith. And that's our third kind of faith in this story, the faith of Andrew, a cautious faith. Andrew says, listen, Jesus, I want to believe in you. I want to believe that you can make this happen, but it just seems impossible. And Andrew offers what they have, but he admits that it's probably not going to be enough. And he's right, of course. Those five little pieces of bread and those two small fish would barely be enough for the little boy that was holding them, let alone the crowd of thousands, maybe up to 20,000 people. You say, Andrew, who's Andrew? We don't know much about him. In fact, we don't read much about him in the New Testament except that he's Peter's brother. In fact, we don't ever see Andrew giving like great speeches or preaching to big crowds. We don't ever see him performing amazing miracles or showing up in the spotlight. Andrew's just kind of always there. And when we read about Andrew, he's always close to Jesus. And here in this story, he shows up not with a thundering kind of preaching voice or with great miracles, but with a cautious sort of faith. He says, Jesus, it's... Not much, but here's a little boy with a snack. 
I don't see how this is going to help anything, but if anybody can do anything with this, it's you, Jesus, so here you go. And I picture him just kind of cautiously nudging the little boy up to stand in front of Jesus. And I wonder, maybe junior higher, if you've been there, you've seen Jesus do some amazing stuff in your life or in the life of your family or in the life of other people around you. But what you're facing right now, when you come to camp, you're facing something back at home or it's going on right now in your life and it just seems impossible that God could fix it, that God could take care of it, that God could heal you, that God could help you. And you want to introduce people around you to Jesus maybe and you're getting pumped up about that this week at camp, but you're not sure how to or how they're going to respond you believe but there's that nagging human shadow of unbelief like the father just a couple chapters away from the demon possessed boy a few pages later here in mark it says oh you're saying lord i believe but help my unbelief isn't that true for so many of us how many of you would be willing like me this evening to to say that your faith is a cautious faith i'd say that's my faith i want to believe but i got to ask God to help me in my unbelief. I think it's okay to have a cautious faith sometimes because God takes that seed of faith and he grows it over time when you keep giving it to him. He grows that because with God, little is big. With God, little is big. God loves to turn a little into a lot. And so Jesus has everybody sit down in groups of 50 and groups of 100 across that hillside, the story tells us. And like at a junior high camp, If we could do that, that'd be like the real miracle in this passage, right? Sitting down in in groups of actually 50 and 100, all organized and everything. It would be mass chaos if we tried to do that here. But Jesus does this. And this is where we see the fourth faith, the faith of the boy, the faith of the boy. And I think this is a complete faith, a complete faith. The boy, by the way, this is not one of the 5,000 men that are there, but a boy, he probably is the same age as some of you right here. This little boy brings what he has, and he opens up his hands, and he gives it to Jesus. Can you just picture this? This little boy, maybe 10, 12, 15 years old, he walks up to Jesus, and he opens up his hands, and he says, it's not much, but you're Jesus, so take it. I want to ask you this evening, what is in your hands tonight? You might say, Jason, you don't know me very well. There's not really anything that I have to offer Jesus. I think there is. What are the talents that God has given you? Are you offering them up to him to use? How about your time? You got time in junior high. Are you offering that time to help Jesus make more people like himself? Do you have things that you love to do? God wants to use those. Are you great at fixing things or creating things or working with kids or doing music or speaking up in front of people? What's in your hands? God can use that. By the way, just look around at our camp staff. God is using them to do all of those things. They're just opening up their hands saying, Jesus, this might not be a whole lot to me, but maybe to you, you can turn little into big. And that's what they're doing. And I think you can do that as well. Little is big when we offer it to God. And that's what happens in this story. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish from the boy who gives his lunch up to Jesus, not knowing what Jesus would do with it, but having complete faith. He opens up his hands and he offers what he has to Jesus. And Jesus, watch this, he prays. 
In fact, Mark says that he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And so that there's absolutely no confusion about the miracle that's about to happen and where it's coming from, Jesus looks up to God in heaven and he thanks God for it. And more than 5,000 people, including Jesus' 12 disciples and one faithful little boy, watch as Jesus worships his father right there in front of them. Now watch this part of the story. Jesus begins to tear off a little piece of bread from one of the loaves. And he's got those fish in his hand and he begins to take little pieces of fish and he puts it in a basket. And he keeps putting it in the basket. And he keeps putting it in the basket and that basket is all of a sudden full. And he gives that basket to one of his disciples. I like to picture him handing that first basket to to Philip, remember him? He's the guy that's like, ah, your salary wouldn't feed all these people, you know. He's the pocket calculator guy. And Philip grabs that first basket and he just stares at it. He's like, whoa, whoa, what? He looks back at Jesus, looks back at the basket, looks back at Jesus. Jesus just smiles and maybe he shrugs. He's like, I'm Jesus. <laughs> and then Jesus takes another basket and he hands it to Andrew and Andrew starts handing out the bread and the fish and Jesus just keeps filling baskets, keeps filling baskets. And then John and Peter and James and the rest of them and they're all distributing by hand the blessing that Jesus had given them. How humbling for these guys who 10 minutes ago they were telling Jesus to send all these people away and now they're literally walking among those groups of 50 and 100 in and out of the aisles, literally walking among them, serving them, blessing them as distributors of what God had created for them. And the blessings just keep coming. Basket after basket is filled and then emptied as people eat and then filled again and nobody goes away hungry. John says that they ate until they had as much as they wanted. They kept asking for seconds and thirds and fourths. And finally, they're just laying back. They loosen their belts. They're like, I can't eat anymore. They were full, fully satisfied by the Savior. And there's 12 baskets of leftovers. And as people stop, stop eating slowly, the disciples begin to gather Again, back up front where Jesus is. And one by one, these 12 guys each bring a basket back. Not empty because it's been emptied by the crowd, but full. Jesus had provided more than enough. So don't miss the point here. Everything in the Bible is on purpose. There's no mistakes, right? A few chapters later in John chapter 6, we talked about this Monday night. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Here's his point. Physical bread will feed you for a little while, but you'll get hungry again. You need to be filled by something or someone more than bread. And just like Jesus turned all those, lo those few loaves and few fish into more than enough for these thousands of people, there's enough for me, Jesus says, to satisfy all of you for all of eternity. And I think it's the same lesson for us here this evening. There are all kinds of things in the world that promise to satisfy you. Money or popularity or stuff or a bigger house or cooler toys or a better looking family or the latest game system. And just like a game of hungry, hungry hippos, we frantically try to gobble up as much of that stuff as we possibly can, pretending like more stuff or more things or more popularity is going to satisfy us. But guess what? None of that will ever satisfy you like Jesus. He's all to us. 
He is more than enough for us. What he provides is more than what can fill us. And so put your faith in him and be satisfied by the Savior. I want you to see yourself in one of these four faiths here tonight. I'm going to look at them again here real quick. And I want you to picture yourself. Which one of these do you best relate to? Are you the crowd in this story? Do you have a convenient faith? Maybe you're here this week and you're saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you as long as it's convenient. As long as I'm around all these other people that say that they love you. As long as I'm at camp. As long as I'm in this environment. As long as my friends from home don't see how I'm acting or singing or, or, or interacting with anybody. As long, as long as it's convenient, I'll follow you. But as soon as I'm out of here, I'm done with you, Jesus. Is that you tonight? It might be. It might be. Or maybe you're a little bit more like Philip. That's a calculated faith. Jesus, I'm going to follow you as long as it makes sense. I don't have a whole lot of faith, Jesus. I got a calculated faith. If I can see how this is going to happen, sure, then I'll walk with you. But as soon as it doesn't make sense to me, I am out. You get up on the top of that climbing tower, the zipline tower, and you hook that thing into the zipline, right? You are putting faith in that zipline, in that cable. That that thing is not going to break, it's not going to drop you. But guess what? None of you are holding on to that cable. None of you are holding on to that zipline. That harness has you. You don't even have to calculate it. It's going to carry you. It'll carry people a whole lot heavier than you. You put your faith in that. Maybe you're one of those that has a calculated faith. Lord, I'm going to follow you as long as it makes sense. Or maybe you're a little bit more like Andrew. You've got that cautious faith. Lord, I, I want to believe. I'll follow you. And I will obey you. But man, I'm struggling to go all in right now. I'm struggling. I'm, I, I just feel like i got to hold something back because this doesn't seem to make sense. And I love camp and I love, I, I'm, I'm feeling it and I'm making commitments and I'm talking to my counselor and I feel like, man, I'm going to go home and God's going to transform my life and some people around me, but I just have a hard time committing fully. I just feel like I got to hold something back and be a little more, more cautious. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're like the boy that had what he thought was just a little and Jesus took it. Because he had complete faith, he gave it to the Lord and God did incredible things with it. Maybe that's you. Or maybe that's who you want to be. You want to tonight say, Lord, I want to go all in. I want to have complete faith. I want you to take whatever's in my hand. I don't think it's much, but I want to give it to you. And I trust you. And I'm going to jump in all in for you, Jesus. I, I believe that you are all that I need. That you are more than enough. You are all to me, Jesus, just like we sang. I believe that because you love me so much, you'll never let me go. I believe that having faith in you is the abundant life. It's the best life ever. And I'm going to have a complete faith as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to go home and go all in for you. Maybe that's you tonight. I don't know what it is. I'm going to tell you one more thing. You're going to go home and there are going to be people and things and opportunities that will claw at your commitments this week. 
And they're going to try to tear you away from what you have committed, what you've covenanted, what you've promised to do, what you've said in front of your friends, your counselors, and in front of the Lord, what you have promised to do. There are going to be all kinds of things that want to pull you away from that. Don't let that happen. Go all in for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for being a God who satisfies. For being a God who sent Your Son Jesus to be our all, and who gives us story after story after story in the Bible of illustrations of how He is our all and wants to be our all. And Lord, I pray for the friends that we have here in front of me. Guys, girls that maybe you're struggling. Maybe they're looking at this week as an opportunity to just kind of go along with the crowd. And like the crowd in this story, they're just saying, yeah, I, I like Jesus. I, I, maybe I even believe in Jesus. But it's convenient. It's shallow. It's not going to last. Maybe it's a kind of a calculated faith that some here have. Lord, I'll, I'll believe in you as long as it makes sense for me. And maybe it's a little bit more faith, but but still a cautious faith. Lord, I, I, I want to. I want to go all in, but I'm just having a hard time opening up my hands and, and giving you everything. I feel like i got to hold something back. Or maybe, Lord, there's guys and girls in this room tonight that would say, just like that little boy, maybe even the age of some of these junior hires in this room tonight, that opened up their hands and gave you everything they had. Lord, I ask that you would raise up a generation of junior hires who become high schoolers, who become young adults, who become old adults, who are transformed by the thought that you are enough. You are enough. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.